Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, we present the publication from the Uncut Mountain Press on the Dogma of the Church, an historical overview of the sources of ecclesiology by the new martyr St. Hilarion Trotsky, which can be found on uncutmountainpress.com. This podcast was originally recorded in September of 2022. Thank you for joining us and God bless you. Thanks for joining us on another edition of Orthodox Ethos Podcast. As you know, we've been working very hard. If you've been following our work, we've been working very hard to produce important patristic literature, especially on the question of the dogma of the church and the uh, contemporary heresy of ecumenism and all of that which has been uh, is implied today by the various theories on the dogma of the church. And one of the most important figures of the 20th century, having to deal from the Orthodox patristic perspective, dealing with this question from the very outset of the century is the new martyr, St. Hilarion Trotsky. And <clears throat> so it is imperative for us if we're going to uh, go deeper and acquire the mind of Christ on this matter and follow the church fathers, meaning the church fathers of our day who've dealt with this matter. If you were in the fourth century and you were faced with the plague of heresy, which was Arianism, you would have taken refuge in the great Cappadocians or St. Athanasius. If you were in the time of the Monothelites, you would have run to St. Maximus. If you were in the time of the false councils or the false council of Florence, you would have run to St. Mark and on and on. And so we're looking for those towering patristic figures in our day who are going to give us the patristic outlook. And one of those is St. Hilarion Totsky. St. Hilarion, as you see here on the cover of the book on the dogma of the church, which is coming out, as I said, in a few weeks from Anka Mountain Press, has written this, which is essentially a master's thesis on the dogma of the church, an historical overview of the sources of ecclesiology. Uh, he wrote this text in his early days as a student, actually. And it is, um, uh, although for a master's, it was essentially a PhD thesis length. In fact, the book, and let me share with you uh, a screenshot from the book page over at Uncut Mountain Press, the master's thesis is actually over 440 pages. <laughs> so it's more like a PhD thesis. Not only is it over 440 pages, but it has over 2,000 footnotes, 2,000 references. What we have here is not simply a, a few thoughts on ecclesiology. What we have here is a tour de force, an historical overview of the sources of the first four centuries, the sources of Orthodox ecclesiology. He goes into the many facets of the, of the struggle of the church against the various heresies. We'll talk about that as we go forward. We'll give you snapshots and introductions to aspects of the church, of the, of the book. But what he was doing there was essentially answering 
what was already going to be the issue of the 20th century from the outset of the 20th century, which makes him an exceptionally uh, important and for, and forward viewing visionary church father and eventually new martyr. Uh, so this is this is an extremely extensive examination of all the early church fathers and the heresies that they were encountering and with regard especially to the dogma of the church. We're going to read a little bit tonight from the preface. We're going to show you uh, a number of uh, uh, snapshots, as I said, from the book. But before we get there, I think it's important to explain a little bit about the saint, about what he's done, what exists already in English, how you can already uh, access a lot of his uh, literature and prepare yourself for this uh, this uh, extensive examination um, and, and understand him uh, in the right context. Because what we have in this text is a early uh, St. Hilarion Trotsky. We have someone who's grappling himself for the, in, in many ways for the first time with all of these sources. And his job in this book and why this book is important is to simply present the sources. So we're not going to have in this book the mature uh, rebuttal of ecumenism or the various theories of ecumenism that we see, for instance, in, and let me share with those, uh, some of that material right now. We see, for instance, in his very important text, uh, which you can find online right now, uh, on the unity of the church, which is over at orthodoxinfo.com. Here you're going to see about 15, 12, 15 years, 10 years later. I'm not sure exactly when he wrote this. Uh, it says here in 19, um, let's see if it does have the year. I think it's, a, it's, it's about 1915, 16, sometime in that. The thesis is written a little bit earlier. And so you have him encountering the various theories now that are coming from the West in this, uh, in this extensive epistle that he's writing in response to uh, the, the um, uh, in particular, in, in response to uh, a American Protestant, and I don't remember his name, let's see if it's commemorated here, a particular representative of the Anglican Church, and produced now in English about 45 years ago now by Monastery Press. It's been in circulation for quite some time. It's an epistle, and so he goes in and he's basically an, doing an apologetic for the um, uh, the orthodox position. And there you'll see him work forward that which he gives basically in uh, simply reports on and ex and examines and gives uh, a summary of in this uh, in this text. Uh, so highly recommend anyone who wants to understand the thought of St. Hilarion to go and check out this text, which you can also find uh, uh, in PDF format. Besides that, another text that's very important to understand the, the, the more mature thought of St. Hilarion is going to be Christianity or the Church, another text produced uh, by uh, the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, uh, similar, but more of a treatise. The other one is an epistle. This is in a treatise. And he's really putting before uh, the Orthodox Church in Russia at the time. What is it? Because he was encountering... Uh, the the very early stages of ecumenism in the form of these student movements that are coming to Russia. If you've read or if you've seen our little book called uh, The Origins of Modern Ecumenism, 
the Missionary Origins of Modern Ecumenism. In there, we have a section dedicated to an encounter and thoughts by St. Hilarion to the new movement, student movement that's coming to Russia by people like John Mott and other evangelical leaders who are going around the world trying to unite the various Protestant sectarians and coming also to the East eventually in the early 19th, 20th century and encountering the Orthodox. <clears throat> and St. Hilarion responds there and in this, uh, in this uh, essay, uh, essentially saying, what is this that they're bringing from the West? What is this? Is this, this is so, something called Christianity but what have we inherited? Have we, have we inherited a religion? Have we inherited uh, thousands of denominations that are vying for, uh, you know, each bringing something to the table? And therefore, if you put this together, you have a mosaic uh, and you've got this shattered uh, image of the church. Now you're supposed to piece back together. And this thing called Christianity that's been developed. Or do you have the church, the body of Christ, which is a given, which is the person of Christ, extended the incarnation extended throughout the ages and so a very important essay extremely important and again answering very early on all of the various erroneous presuppositions that will will, will dominate the ecumenical movement and into which we need to stress the orthodox entered and accepted into which the orthodox ent entered and accepted so christianity the church another important essay he goes on though and he examines Orthodox understanding of Holy Scripture, Holy Scripture and the Church. Very important essay produced and uh, translated and produced by the St. Herman Brotherhood and published in the Orthodox Word a few years ago. Very important. Uh, if you want to go deeper and understand the Orthodox understanding of the Scripture and the Church and how we should understand it and into which context we should properly understand the Holy Scripture, this essay is tremendous Tremendous uh, assistance. We could, you know, if you're coming from a Protestant background, especially, you're going to be cured of many of your uh, prejudices and, and uh, false uh, uh, presuppositions and understandings uh, of how to approach Holy Scripture. Another, let me actually correct the uh, the link here. That's the link for that. And the previous one, Christianity Church, that's the link for that. But if you go to orthodoxinfo.com, you can find all of this. And this also uh, online uh, PDF, newmartyr.info, St. Hilarion, Holy Scripture and the Church. Uh, besides that, uh, we also have a very uh, uh, insightful examination of socialism, very timely in our day from St. Hilarion. And we have uh, been uh, the video produced by Orthodox Wisdom and the text as well that's circulating from Orthodox uh, Life magazine. Uh, this is a um, available online in, in, to be able to read in the Orthodox uh, Life magazine. It's basically, um, so you can find this online, Christianity and Socialism by the new martyr Hilarion. And this was originally produced by Orthodox Life. And now it's uh, online as a kind of all the various old issues and a lot of the articles, very important for our day as well. So St. Hilarion, again, bringing the patristic mind to bear on so such an important topic. Of course, Russia overwhelmed by communism, but we're dealing with socialism and, and Marxism today uh, as well, like, like never before in the Western world, so very pertinent. I want to also make you uh, aware of a, uh, you can find this by just searching online, but just to bring it to your attention, a um, beautiful essay 
the relevance of the holy higher martyr Hilarion Trotsky for our times, the relevance for our times. I think that uh, this would be a good read if you want to say, well, what, why do I have to read? What's the what's important? Why is St. Hilarion important for the church today? Well, here's a wonderful essay uh, that's going to uh, uh, be very illuminating. And you can also see on the right, there's other other uh, uh, texts that uh, they have available at orthochristian.com on the persecution against the Russian Orthodox Church and Archbishop Hilarion Trotsky, Metropolitan Anthony Kravitsky, a man of Paschal joy, uh, and, and many other uh, texts that you can find. Why is it necessary to restore the patriarchate also by St. Hilarion? By the way, all of these texts, our goal at, at Uncommonton Press is to bring the whole corpus, the entire writings of St. Hilarion into English. Uh, year after year, we hope once a year we'll bring out a tome like this one, the 440 pages, uh, and it will be circulating uh, each year a new uh, offering from St. Hilarion because he is so relevant and his writings are so relevant and so important. And because he is, I think, and, and what I'll talk about a, a lot tonight is his place in the conveying of the holy tradition is very unique and very important <clears throat> because he is not, uh, he, he, he truly is a universal Orthodox saint and he brings to bear the universal tradition in many ways, uh, not without some limitations. And we'll talk about those as well, because everyone has their limitations and historical and otherwise. So we'll talk about that as well. But a very important essay there on the relevance of St. Hilarion. And then uh, a very a very good and important resource online is uh, Classical Christianity. Uh, if you've not been over to that uh, website, Classical Christianity, um, done by a very good uh, friend of ours uh, who produces wonderful material, a lot of excerpts, and very astute himself in observations. But you can see here, he's got a lot of excerpts uh, from the writings of St. Laurian on the church and the canon of scripture, like we said before, the effects of separation from the church. Wonderful little uh, excerpts how to, on how to debate the iconophobes, on the reduction of Christianity. These are excerpts from various essays. Some of them we've already talked about tonight, but deification, evolution. You can see he has, he has so many important things to say to all of us today. We need to take refuge in the saints. And so if you're not an avid reader of the writings of St. Laurian, here's your opportunity. Now let's go back to the book. Let's read a little bit about the book. And let me share uh, the excerpt that's online at our uh, website uh, and talk about that uh, a bit. Let me just read it and then we'll talk about it. The question of the identity of the church, its membership, hierarchy, and mysteries is of paramount importance today and also the primary stumbling block within heterodoxy and the ecumenical movement, including some unfortunate Orthodox who have uh, succumb to uh, the various deluded ideas about the church, embraced uh, those and uh, promoted them within the Orthodox Church. Uh, in this book, On the Dogma of the Church, an historical overview of the sources of ecclesiology, the holy higher martyr, Hilarion, St. Hilarion Trotsky, explores patristic resources from early centuries of Christianity, seminal works at the periphery of the consciences of every Christian, and brings them to the forefront as living witnesses to the unbroken tradition of the church. So again, 
The goal here in this book, as you'll see when we go into each chapter, is not to immediately defend the faith against contemporary heretical views. It's not an apology uh, as those other essays that we've shown you uh, for our stance in terms of ecumenism or the reception of converts, the proper orthodox reception, understanding of the reception of converts, which is also addressed by St. Hilarion in the, on the unity of the church. Uh, it's not, this is not what this book is. This book is to take you back to the scriptures and to the early church fathers and what they encountered and, and what they understood the church to be. So it's, it's 2,400 references uh, to the church fathers and the various heretical uh, ideas uh, that were circulating, including the contemporary scholarship in Russia at the time when he was writing this in the early 20th century. Uh, St. Hilarion's staggeringly extensive familiarity with sources, both patristic and modern, coupled with his own lucid thinking and profoundly orthodox outlook, superbly equip him for his extensive analysis of the subject. Eminently engaging and highly readable, this collection of essays, this collection of essays takes the reader on a journey through an exploration of the dogma of the church in the experience of her members. Remember that orthodox theology is, is uh, or dogmatic theology is experience. It's based on experience. It's not a theoretical, speculative, philosophical approach. It's not, uh, again, a armchair academic theology in the Orthodox Church. It's the experience of the life in Christ then put down in uh, expressing the mind of Christ. That's what we're talking about. That's what he's examining. And that's why, and he, as one who then repeats and goes deeper and can speak from experience in his day, encounter the various theories, he's one who can guide us and show us and present to us uh, these uh, uh, this experience uh, as expressed in the ancient fathers. Uh, St. Hilarion presents the reader with historical affirmations of present-day church life and worship, touching on subjects ranging from hierarchical roles to biblical mistranslation. So he's not dealing just with the, uh, a narrow aspect of church dogma, but he's looking, at, he's looking at all the different things that they were encountering, because there were a variety of ideas and heretical movements, as you'll see, that, he, that, uh, that were addressed from the very beginning. One of the delusions today is that, oh, we didn't really have any ecclesiological development. We don't really know what the church, nobody really talked about the church. That's just not right. That's not true. As you'll see in this amazing text, from the get-go, people were talking about the church and the heresies of the days were, uh, were against the, 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 the experience and the life and the dogma, therefore, of the church. Uh, and that's what's you both... Uh, that's what's common with the heresies of today. We th tend to think that the heresies of the day are very drastically different than the early church heresies. That's, not, that's actually not the case. We have a lot of similarity in the rejection of the life and experience and the authority of the church in every age and in every heresy, including the, very, the various papal, and, uh, papal and reformed Protestant uh, sectarian ideas about the church. In the words of the foreword to the 2004 Russian edition, in his works, Hiramater Hilarion expounds the Catholic truth of the church and does so naturally and organically for his whole life melded entirely with the life of the church. 
This is why, when discussing things well-known and generally accepted, Father Hilarion, St. Hilarion was able to present them in his own way and in a new light. That's exactly how it should be. This superb collection of essays is one that will edify the minds and enrich the ecclesiastical lives of new generations of Christians of all walks of life while providing invaluable context for evaluating the authenticity and orthodoxy of contemporary theories about the church. So why is that? That's extremely important for every one of us. It, it, we cannot rely on the experts in the church, meaning the academic theologians or the even the uh, those who are pushing various theories among the hierarchy. And they want us to just blindly follow them into the delusion of ecumenism. So we are not going to say, not, we have no apology on the at the second coming at the judgment seat and say, well, it's his fault. It's the, it's the academic theologians' fault. It's the, those bishops who follow those academic theologians. It's their fault that I ended up where I am today, outside of the, of the church, among the, the weeds of heresy, not living a strict ascetic life, not li living in the communion of the church, which is where ecumenism leads the people. And they, and they block those who want that life from coming and entering in. And so uh, we cannot blame anyone else. We, as The minute you have been baptized, you've been chrismated, you've communed to the mysteries, you have a grave responsibility to bear the burden of being an Orthodox Christian and confessing the faith. That means you know the faith. That means you've learned the faith. You've gone deeper. So all of us are required to that for our own salvation, but how much more for the sake of the brethren? The sake of those who've been deluded, who've been led astray, those who are under the attack of the various demonic ideas about the church, those various theories that are undermining the unity of the church today. It is not someone else's job. It's not someone else's responsibility to bear that burden and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. If we love Christ and the brethren, we will go deeper in the understanding, experiential, and through the experience of the saints uh, of the church, of the body of Christ, of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to live in the church, what the boundaries are, what the nature is, what the identity is. That's something we each individually have a responsibility and a, and a need spiritually to acquire. So that's why this book is invaluable. You're going to go through the, those first four centuries and you're going to look at what the church fathers had to say. So if you're a, 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 among those outside the body of Christ, among the various papal and reformed Protestant sectarians, and you're looking for the truth in orthodoxy, here is a book which will be very helpful to, to see from the beginning what the church, church's mind in the church fathers is about the nature and the identity of the church. Let me just say, let me take a break and say, we're extremely grateful and we're extremely pleased uh, that we were able to come together and work with Father Nathan Williams a tremendous, uh, uh, tremendously professional and and studious and serious translator from Russian. Uh, he's translated a number of texts and important texts already, but this I think uh, is one of the most important, uh, in at least in our estimation, why we spent a lot of time and a lot of resources to make this available to you in the English-speaking world. We're very grateful to Father Nathan for his struggle. Uh, without him, it could not be possible. And as you'll see, it's very readable. It's very readable. It's very uh, approachable. All right, so that is uh, a, a few words on the importance of the text. Let me open up and uh, um, also, uh, before we go into the chapters and uh, 
and look at, uh, at the, the inner part of the text, let me say a little bit about the person of St. Hilarion and why he's so, so important in terms of, uh, in terms of church history. Uh, well, in terms of these questions that we're facing today in the Orthodox Church. We have to go back before his time. We have to go back into the 18th century. We have to go back to what was going on in, uh, in the 18th century around the Orthodox world. And then we're going to understand the, the pivotal role that he plays in being a bridge to the early church, earlier church fathers uh, for us who are after him in the 21st century. Uh, not unlike Saint, uh, in a different way, of course, Saint uh, Paisus Velitskovsky or Saint Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain. Uh, Saint Hilarion is a key living link. He's a key link to the holy tradition and to the uh, continuation of that coming down to us to this day. He's a key because he actually, of course, read Greek and read Latin, as you'll see in this in this extensive uh, his extensive notes. Uh, he's citing a Greek and Latin texts throughout. So uh, a man very well educated, but also extremely well, as we said, well uh, versed and enmeshed in the life of the church. Uh, so he takes all those tools and he goes back and he and he has access to the writings of those who came before him. And it's obvious to me, at least, that this is something that I, I can't, uh, you know, confirm from other uh, sources, but I think he must have been uh, very familiar with Saint Nicodemus, the Pedalian, and the writings uh, of the of the 18th and 19th century Church Fathers from Greece, and of course he would have been connected with Saint Paisius Velitskovsky and the great renewal of Orthodoxy coming through Saint Paisius to the Optinum Fathers, to Valam, and the whole Philokalia Renaissance of the 19th century in great saints like Saint Seraphim of Serov or Saint Ambrose of Optina or any number of St. Ignatius, Branchet, all of these great church fathers that we now are reading that has been translated into English, thank God, by people like Father Nicholas Kotar up at uh, Jordanville and others who are translating St. Ignatius, Branchet, is translating St. Theophon the Reckless uh, from St. Herman of Alaska Brotherhood. These church fathers are, are, are part of this Paisian Renaissance that came to Russia. And in, in, in many ways are of the same mind and the same spirit and the same ethos and outlook as the Kolivadi's fathers. And that's why I uh, tend to think of St. Hilarion as a, uh, of course, not strictly speaking, but in spirit, a Kolivadi's father in Russia. Uh, because he's taking the baton, as it were, and passing it on uh, to the Russian church. It's not an accident that he uh, was very close to Metropolitan Anthony Krapovitsky, the first chief hierarch, first hierarch of the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, which has been the, uh, the vessel in many ways uh, in the Western world of, of bringing and connecting us and, and communicating to us the, the authentic Orthodox ascetic ethos uh, that has come come to the church in the Western world. Much of that has been through the witnesses of those great towering figures coming out of Russia uh, in the 1920s and 30s, Metropolitan Anthony, St. John of Shanghai in San Francisco, uh, Father, Father uh, Michael Povazansky, and others who wrote and lived and communicated 
to the Russian diaspora and then to the English-speaking people around the world through translations, uh, as we said, citing from uh, some of St. Hilarion's translations. The fact that he was close to Metropolitan Anthony, it was at the was that in many ways the, the the foundation of the Russian church outside of Russia and the new martyrs, himself a new martyr uh, and uh, dying uh, after uh, contracting sickness when he was in prison in Solovki in 1929. A defender of the Patriarchate, a defender of St. Tikhon, a confessor of the faith, uh, he, uh, you know, in so many ways played a very important and pivotal uh, role in connecting the church in Russia, all of these great new martyrs, uh, through his work and his writings, he was re revered and respected for, for that offering by so many of the new martyrs. Uh, and so St. Hilarion, in many ways, I would call him a Kolivadi's father in Russia. And he connects, therefore, in that way, uh, or Russian Orthodoxy and uh, Orthodoxy in the uh, uh, Constantinople and in Greece and in the Mediterranean. It connects through his writings and his, uh, his patristic witness. Uh, you see and feel the same spirit that you find in St. Paisus and St. Nicodemus. Now, if we go back and spend just a moment or two talking about the battle that was going on in the 18th century of the Orthodox Church against all of this encrosion from the West already going on, Throughout the whole uh, of the uh, 18th century, the 1700s, even into the 17th century, the end of the 17th century, you see the beginning of the, the turning away from patristic orthodoxy among uh, those influenced by the West, among the hierarchies, some academic theologians. Uh, you see that both in Greece and in Russia. You know, it, it's good to remember St. Paisios, who we commemorate and we revere today, uh, he walked away from this as a young man when he went to theological school in Ukraine. He turned his back on Latinization, the Western captivity of his day, and the theological captivity of the theological schools of the time, which were teaching even in Latin in, in certain parts of the West, Western uh, Ukraine and other places. So much so had they, had they lost touch with the holy tradition that they were teaching in Latin and, of course, communicating a scholastic, Latinized understanding uh, of, of the church fathers and church experience. So he walked away from that. And where did he go? To Mount Athos. He went, he went to the same sources, the same life of St. Nicodemus and the Colivadi's fathers. And, of course, he was at one with them. And one of the key figures that, that tells us and shows that he was one with St. Nicodemus, uh, besides the fact that St. Nicodemus early on, the great, St. Nicodemus early on actually got in a boat and tried to go and become the disciple of St. Paisios Veliskovsky, uh, but it was not God's will. And uh, he turned back, he realized that it was not God's will. He stayed on the Holy Mountain. But so they were so much connected. Uh, you can see that in the lives of the two saints, but also in, in historical events like this, but also in the fact that they were both very close to uh, uh, Dorotheos Volisma, who is uh, who was a uh, teacher and preacher of the cons of the patriarchate and worked closely with Saint Nicodemus on the pedalion and and contrary to the deluded ideas of some contemporary academics that they were not of one mind, it's very obvious that they were of one mind when you consider besides the fact that we have all of the uh, correspondence, but if you consider the fact that Saint uh, Paisios uh, asked for and received 
the treaties of, of Ulesmas, uh, the orders of Ulesmas, on the whole question of the day, which is still the question of the day, and the question of reception of converts, reception of the heterodox, uh, and the question of baptism. Should the Latins, should the papal Protestants be received by baptism into the Orthodox Church? That was the, uh, a major issue in the seventh, in the 18th century. Of course, we have the council in 1755, in which the uh, patriarchates uh, and the patriarchs of the day said, yes, they must be received by baptism. You have the medallion in which St. Nicodemus says the same thing. You have the trees by Vula's Mas that says the same thing. And Paisios, St. Paisios asking and receiving that from him, his his spiritual son, essentially, St. Vula's Mas was planning to be himself also a disciple of Paisios Velaskovsky and had plans to go and become a monk in the monastery, wanted to do that in much, for much of his life. But it was not blessed. He served the church very valiantly in the patriarchate. But he got that text, translated it, and published it just before his repose uh, in the early uh, 19th century. Uh, why am I talking about all that? Because these events are what formed, or what was going on, and what the church was struggling with, and also what made it made it played a big role in forming also the mature thoughts of Saint Hilarion Trotsky. Because he's reading these writings, he's reading the, his predecessors, he's, he's, he's receiving and following his immediate predecessors and those before him, like St. Paisios. And you can, you can see clearly that he wants to be a uh, follower of the Holy Fathers. This is the key uh, characteristic of the saint, that he is a disciple of the disciples, that he is an obedient uh, uh, one one uh, to Christ in the saints. And of course, you can't be obedient to Christ if not in the church and if not in the saints. You cannot, on your own, uh, be a true disciple of the master without being a disciple of the disciples of the master. These things are inseparable. That's the, that's the nature of the church, that it is uh, at one and the same time Catholic, meaning the whole truth, and apostolic, and one and holy, meaning that Christ is, uh, it's Christ all in all. All of these things are simultaneous. We didn't say, we don't confess faith in, by the way, faith in, not we're not talking about, but we're confessing faith in the church, meaning the body of Christ. The church, therefore, is a person that we're confessing faith in. That's Christ himself. And we're not confessing it and saying, well, we believe in the church or the apostolic church or the Catholic church or the one church, or the holy church. Those things are not what we confess. All together, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, right? All together, all these are, these are all necessary, and it's, all, it's, all, uh, it's necessary if you're going to be a disciple of Christ to be a disciple of the apostles and the successors of the apostles. And so you see St. Alarion is a one who is a pomenis tisaigies patrasi, following the holy fathers. And this is why it's so invaluable in our day, because following the Holy Fathers, he's now encountering the beginning of this massive grave challenge to the church in the 20th, 20th and 21st century, which is the heresy, the pan-heresy, as St. Eustin uh, Bobovich calls it, of ecumenism. This pan-heresy of ecumenism, which is a threat to the very uh, salvation of all the members of the body. You, you ask, well, you know, we, you, many of you, are struggling in your parishes and other places because you're struggling not only with your passions, your sins, the world, the devil, and all the rest, but you're also struggling, unfortunately, with, in many ways, a clergy who are not fully immersed and fully 
committed to the holy tradition. They've been infected. They've been diluted. They've been pulled away uh, by various ideas. And and whether you know it or understand it or not, a lot of that secularization, a lot of that distortion that you feel or that you're resisting in various places today in the in the Orthodox world, during the COVIDism and all the rest, it has to do directly with this pan heresy. That for decades and decades, we've the church has been weakened. The people of God have been weakened in the church by this heresy, this pernicious, deluded idea that the church is not one, not holy, not Catholic, not apostolic, not apostolic but it's united to heterodoxy. It's got falsehood and truth within it. It is divided. All these various uh, uh, theories imply these cacodoxies about Christ, the body of Christ. These things going on for decades now and eating away at the strength and the prophetic voice of the church obviously plays a huge role in the very life that you and I lead in the parishes and and how much, uh, what a dynamic or lack of dynamic life we have in the parish. It's all connected. So the fact that, as we said earlier, you cannot be indifferent. You are a co-responsible. All of us are co-responsible for the life of the church. That's why coming to the feet of the great saints who who passed on to us the holy tradition, like Saint Hilarion, is essential. If you're going to make progress, you're going to be a part of the solution. You're going to be a healthy cell in the in the body. You're going to be uh, yourself a follower of the Holy Fathers. All right, let's turn now to. We'll come back. There's much more we can say. Actually, a lot of history, a lot of interesting. Let's turn now to uh, the book. We'll talk a little bit about. Uh, just aspects of the book. Right there, you see uh, the title page, St. Hilarion. And the scroll that he has in his hands right there is, without the church, there is no salvation. Without the church, there is no salvation. That reminds us of the famous saying by St. Cyprian, Cyprian of Carthage, there is no salvation outside the church. And it's, um, it is not an accident um, that St. Hilarion has that scroll, of course. He is a faithful follower of uh, St. Cyprian, presents St. Cyprian's views, embraces them in all of his essays, understands the importance of St. Cyprian. He does not turn away from him. Of course, St. Cyprian, like all the church fathers, uh, cannot stand alone. We will embrace the consensus. We can embrace the patristic consensus and not one or two fathers. And that's why Immediately when you hear someone tearing down St. Cyprian, you know that they actually do not have a patristic view of things because the fathers neither would never tear down a church father, first of all. Secondly, they would not put all their marbles in one basket and say, this is it. He alone, St. Augustine alone, St. Cyprian alone. No, that's not the patristic way. Uh, but they would not disregard them at all as because the saints did not dis disregard those coming before them, including St. Cyprian. So without the church, there is no salvation, he says here. There is no church salvation outside the church, St. Cyprian says. And all that is saying, brothers and sisters, is there's no salvation outside of Christ because Christ is the church. And this is another effect. This is another uh, 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 terrible fruit of the contemporary Protestant outlook on the church is that we some Orthodox, unfortunately, but in the world, you see this going on. They're implicitly separating 
the church from Christ. And they're talking about one who can be separated from church, but united to Christ. But that's impossible because Christ is the church. Christ is the body of Christ, obviously. He's the head. And that's why when you say there's no salvation outside the church, all you're saying is the church is Christ because there's no salvation outside of Christ. Unless you want to embrace the various theories of ecumenism and perennialism and universalism and all the rest, which are dissolving the last death nail, the last nail in the coffin of the heterodox West is coming with universalism, perennialism, and the whole march to Antichrist, which is going to talk about unity of all religions. And many pass up the mountains. We see and hear even some Orthodox uh, uh, hierarchs, who are not Orthodox at all, uh, mentioning and saying, following blindly the blind of the world. Uh, so if you, in your mind, separate and talk about the church over here and Christ over there, know that you are not following the Holy Fathers. Now you're going to say, well, what about those outside the church? Well, that's another question, but it's not an ecclesiological question. It's not, in other words, it's not, it's not, uh, you cannot talk about salvation and life in Christ outside of life in the church. These are one and the same thing. So what is experienced out there, we can talk about that, but it's not really the topic tonight, is a preparation for, a response to, a preparation for the church, life in the church, and a response by the Holy Spirit to the longings of every human being, the, the desires of every human being to be in communion with God. And that definitely is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring every human being to the light and to the church. And that work of the Holy Spirit outside the church we can talk about, it, but it's not the same work. It's not the same energy. The, the energy of God in the church, in the, in the mysteries, the purification, illumination, and glorification or deification of man is not that which was happening outside the presuppositions, outside the body, outside the communion and the union, outside of the initiation into the mystery. That's a work of the Holy Spirit, which is not that of deification purification and the mysteries and all the rest. So we have to make a very clear and different work and different presuppositions exist for those two things. So when does the church start? When do the, where do the boundaries set for the church? Well, when we the mysteries begin, when we become uh, initiated into the mystery, and when we are received by the church as a catechumen, we begin the process of preparation for that initiation and that union. And that's a very clear, concrete, historical, practical reality. You know, it's a scandal to the mind of the Gnostic today that the Christ is here and not there, that you have to be initiated into him in a time and place. That's the great scandal that the modern Gnostic mind will not easily accept. They want it to be nebulous. They want it to be spiritual. They want it to be malleable because they want to retain their own will and desire and ideas and not submit. But as we said, the characteristic of the Christian is to submit to Christ in the church through the Holy Fathers, following the Holy Fathers teachings. Let's look at the table of contents and a little bit what uh, you have in this book. Uh, beyond the foreword and, and the about the author, we have the preface, which we're going to read from tonight a bit. And then we go through the various uh, chapters. And 
we have six essays, six uh, essential, uh, essentially presenting and some commentary. Again, I want to stress this book is not an extensive commentary by St. Hilarion on the various theories of ecumenism. One should not buy this book if that's what they're looking for. They have those uh, available to them in part in some of the essays that I've mentioned earlier in the podcast. No, what you're going to do here in this book is you're going to go to the sources and St. Hilarion is going to guide you through those sources step by step. He's not going to do a lot of the commentary that you might want, some, but not a tremendous amount. He's going to say, here's what St. Augustine said. Here's what St. Cyprian said. Here's what uh, the various uh, saints said. So in the first essay, let's see, did I get this? This is the first essay. The first essay is the New Testament doctrine concerning the church. Uh, and you see here automatically St. Hilarion is saying, look, what I'm doing here is not a complete treatment. He does this again and again. He's doing essentially a master's thesis here. So he's saying to his professors, to his uh, reviewers, who loved this text, by the way, as you read in the, uh, uh, the, in the uh, uh, introduction the, about St. Hilarion, you'll see that they adored this text. They saw it as a, I mean, this is a young man who's, who's going thoroughly through the Church Fathers, reading the original sources, and so they're thrilled, and they really uh, immediately promote uh, the text and St. Hilarion uh, very quickly up the, the, the ranks of, uh, 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 of church hierarchy and give him a lot of responsibility. He almost teaches immediately after his graduation. Uh, but here he's saying, look, in this, the subject of which is the history of the dogma concerning the church, we naturally can provide only a very general outline of the doctrine of the New Testament, which, having no independent and absolute scholarly value, can only serve as a kind of introduction to the history of dogma proper concerning the church. So he's humbly saying, look, I can only do so much in this essay. Uh, and for all of those out there, you know, people write to me and say, are you, are, have you started? Uh, unfortunately, they're not getting the message that we are not working on. Let me just write them here. Uh, we're not working uh, through Crowdcast tonight. Unfortunately, we had a, we had a problem. Uh, so, New Testament doctrine concerning the church is essay one, examines the scriptural passages and the commentary of the fathers on that. Number two, second essay, the concept of the church in anti-Judean polemics of the first two centuries. So you have the Judaizers. Many people don't realize that St. Paul, fighting against the Judaizers, talking about that in his epistles very clearly, this is a question of ecclesiology. This is a question of the church, the boundary of the church, the submission of the church. And it's important to remember that uh, contrary to contemporary ideas, uh, that we can have massive uh, uh, and important differences, but still be a part of the same church and, and have the same life in Christ, even though we're separated and we don't have communion and all the rest. These are the theories of ecumenism. Contrary to that, you see the, what, with what sensitivity uh, with what uh, uh, care Saint Paul and the and the early uh, the early apostles counter the Judaizers and say that even that comparatively simple and and non-confrontational stance in some ways of the Judaizers, this is another gospel. 
another gospel, St. Paul says, uh, the fact that they would they would not see the fulfillment of circumcision and baptism. They wanted to impose upon the Gentiles the various types that have now been fulfilled implies and shows that they had not embraced Christ as the Messiah fully. They had not understood the fulfillment, the completion uh, uh, of, of all the preparation of the Old Testament. They were still holding on and not submitting again and again and again throughout church history. What we have is a failure and a refusal to submit to Christ as all in all, as a as the fulfillment and the fullness. And there is no lacking. There's no partiality. There's no partial communion, partial participation, partial acceptance. You either submit and are and 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 are die to the old man and rise again now in Christ and accept everything that he gives, or you are not his disciple. It's that simple. And so the Judaizers would not, and they were teaching and preaching another gospel. Of course, that has to do with ecclesiology. So here we have, in the first two centuries already, a tremendous amount of resources for us to understand the boundaries of the church. And we're grateful very much to St. Hilarion, who's going to guide us through that. Chapter 3, third essay. And these are extensive essays. We're talking about 440 pages uh, in, in, these, uh, in these essays. In the third essay, we have the teaching of the anti-Gnostic writers concerning the church. Uh, one second, let me just give a heads up to everybody who's, who's still, uh, if they're still over there, I hope they're not still over there, but some people might be popping in over there and not realizing that they need to go over to YouTube. Uh, teaching of the anti-Gnostic writers concerning the church. So he's examining all those early church fathers, St. Irenaeus and others who stood against the Gnostics of the day. And of course, the Gnostics are alive and well today. As you, If you've been following our, uh, our series of lectures on the book of Revelation, you'll see that Freemasonry and the various secret societies, the New Age, and all of that is a total revival of Gnosticism that there's a whole Gnostic element to the Protestant sectarians today. The denial of the real, the denial of the reality of Christ in the mysteries, uh, the wanting to make everything uh, essentially uh, a denial of the body, a denial of the body. I mean, ecumenism is a kind of Gnosticism. It denies the, the, the scandal of the particular, the scandal that is that the body is in a particular place and time and an identity, and you have to enter into that. That's a kind of Gnostic rejection of the body, right? Of, of, of reality in, in, in not, and wanting to spiritualize everything uh, and, and empty it, empty it, and, and empty the incarnation of, its, of the implications of the incarnation. They want to they walk away from that narrowness, right? That, that's too narrow for us. Uh, we want a Christ that's going to be very malleable in our hands and we can become perennialists easily. And we, can, we can reshape things to make them in our minds make sense. Okay, that's the modern humanist mentality that is dominating most religious men and women today and most seekers. And so this is the antidote. St. Hilarion is going to come here and tell you how to uh, see this through the lens of early church fathers. We also have fourth essay, the doctrine of the sanctity of the church and the conflict with Montanism. Again, if you've been watching our lectures on uh, the book of Revelation, you'll be familiar 
with that harlot, uh, that Jezebel, right? Uh, that was a great uh, threat to the church uh, in, in, in Asia Minor, who was a predecessor of the Montanists and remained within the body, was not, not uh, decisively excised. And that was the great complaint of the Lord with the bishop that he did not decisively excise this heretical-minded uh, Jezebel. And the church eventually from that uh, area of Asia Minor became the source of the heresy of Montanism. So the church was, was struggling from, its, from the get-go with heresies that undermined the nature of the church, whether it be the, one, the oneness of the church, and that would be the oneness of baptism, by the way. The oneness of the church and the oneness of baptism are inseparable because you're baptized into the church. And there's only one way, one door into that church, and that's through death and resurrection. That's the door to the church. Therefore, the one baptism, the one faith, the one church, those things are inseparable. St. Paul commemorates them all together. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So that sanctity is another aspect that was under attack in the early church by the various heretics, including the Montanists, and the distortion of what it means to be holy and all the rest. Uh, and so in this fourth essay, we have a 204 here by St. Hilarion, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of citations, not only modern, but also not only ancient, but also modern. Question of the church in the dogmatics, dogmatic polemics. Uh, I'm sorry, no, we're going to the fifth essay. Fifth essay is the teaching of St. Cyprian of Carthage concerning the church. It takes a whole chapter and dedicates it to St. Cyprian uh, and, uh, and then follows up uh, with uh, an examination of the church's polemics with Donatism. And of course, that's going to be dominated to a large degree by St. Augustine. So both of these towering African church fathers, St. Cyprian and St. Augustine are dealt with in this book. Uh, oftentimes, uh, the debate today centers around uh, these two figures and the third century, uh, uh, the third century struggle with the various heresies and what the church fathers had to say about that. And uh, uh, so, I think this 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 book is going to be very valuable to all of our researchers, all of our theologians, all of the people who want to go deeper and and see through a proper lens a church father of our day, the church fathers in the ancient uh, world. So let's go. Uh, we're already one hour in, so I don't want to go too long tonight. But I'm just going to be touching on uh, the book. But let's go to uh, the actual book. Let me open up the PDF here. We'll walk it through a little bit. So this is the... Uh, so we have a little part about the author. A short, short piece about the author. Let me actually go back and just show you. We have some of the pages here. I think it'll be interesting for you. Just on so we begin here, and we've got the publisher page and the contents, the foreword here, just a little commemoration about the English edition, about the author, a few words about the author. Uh, let me actually read on the left side here a few words that his uh, contemporaries said about him in this, in this particular essay. In his review, S.S. Glakolev, I'm probably saying it wrong, in particular stated books such as that of Mr. Trotsky. Now, he was a layman at the time, right? He was not, apparently he was, I think he was ordained shortly after this. Mr. Trotsky rarely appeared 
uh, appear in Rus. In Rus, it, its advent marks a red letter day for theological scholarship. Professor Muratov noted that the work of Trotsky not only supplements but wholly surpasses the works of uh, his Russian predecessors and concluded his review with the words of high praise. If it were up to me, without the slightest hesitation, I would declare Trotsky's dissertation fully worthy, not only of a master's degree, but a PhD. Not only a master's degree, but a PhD. As I said, the length of this is uh, is very uh, very much a PhD length essay. It's not a master's. I don't think anybody is going to write 400 uh, pages and 2,400 footnotes today for their master's degree. It's more like 120 or something, or 200 at the most. Uh, and so the professor is recognizing this this amazing offering of this uh, of this master's student. Uh, you know, it's important to, to, to show this because there are going to be people today in some of our seminaries who are going to dismiss this book as, uh, you know, just uh, uh, hardcore traditionalism or something like that. They'll use some kind of phrase to pigeonhole it in a kind of in a snotty way. Uh, but that's not how his contemporaries understood it. And that's not how the saints uh, viewed it. And, and people like uh, the towering figure of Metropolitan Anthony and all those who followed him. Uh, so uh, we should not uh, listen to uh, some of our academic uh, elites here who uh, don't want to deal with such a formidable opponent uh, when it comes to uh, the questions that are facing the church today. You know, they want they want to be able to dominate the discussion, and that's why they shut out certain voices uh, that should be front and center. And Saint Hilarion, sometimes I, I get the sense that he is. Uh, not given his due today. And hopefully this book will be uh, the beginning of a reversal of that. So his defense took place on December 11th, 1912. That's what I was looking for earlier. Uh, and it was in the form of a debate on, on, in 1913. He was awarded his degree and he was received the Macarius Award in March of the same year. All right, so let's read a little bit the preface and then we'll open it up for questions and a discussion. The dogma concerning the church may be termed the self-identification of the church. It is this dogma that determines what the church is and what dis distinguishes it from all that is not the church. The church is not a phenomenon of the earth, a natural earthly order. The mysterious depths of church life in accordance with the unfailing promise of Christ the Savior are always and invariably enveloped by the grace-filled power of the Holy Spirit. The full depth of this mystical life of the church is not, of course, subject to logical definitions and scholarly research. Okay, so right off the bat, he's saying, look, I'm doing this research, but do not be deluded to think that we're going we're gonna to cover, cover it all. This is going to be a partial covering to a certain degree uh, because you have to live the life to understand it. You have to live it, to, to, and you, even then you won't be able to express it. Even then you won't be able to express it fully. It is given directly to him who participates in it, as Hilary of Portier expressed in the words, this is the peculiar property of the church, that when she makes herself known, then she is understood. I'm reading from the translation in the footnote. And this is an interesting quote because it's a little obscure, I think, for most of us. What is he talking about? The peculiar property of the church is that when she makes herself known, then she is understood. Well, 
if we remember the famous saying of St. Nicholas Cavasilas, that the church is known in the mysteries. The church is known in the mysteries. Because what, what are the mysteries? But Christ given and himself giving himself and being given, right? He is the one who is both giving the mystery, imparting it, and is given in the mystery. Whether it be the Eucharist or baptism or ordination, he is doing all. He is all in all in every mystery. And so therefore, it should be obvious immediately that he's not going to deny himself. He's not going to be schizophrenic. He's not going to uh, give there where the rest of his body does not exist. Though, if we understand the mysteries immediately, we just reject as absurd and obscene the various theories of partial communion and partial churchliness and, and all of these various theories that want, because there's other motivations and other perspectives coming that are not purely based on the experience of the church. So the church is known in the mysteries, and he's saying that you can't understand the church until she makes herself known. When? In the mysteries. In other words, participation. That's what that means. You have to participate in the church to understand. And that's when it's, it's understood is when it's known, and it's known in the mysteries. So for this reason, we may say that the self-identification of the church is experienced specifically by one who dwells in the church and is a living member of her body, all right? So if you're not in it, you're only going to get it piecemeal. You're only going to stand piecemeal. You're going to, there's going to be a, it's going to be a closed book. And that's exactly what Tertullian said to the heretics, the great father of African Christianity and the, the master, as St. Cyprian called him. This was, of course, before he fell at the end of his life into the heresy, uh, but he was still revered um, for all of that he offered. And he said famously that uh, the scriptures do not belong to the heretics, to the heterodox, to the sectarians. It is a closed book because it presupposes, of course, the life of the church. Uh, it's not does not belong to them. And this, of course, this is the truth of the gospel, the truth of the dogma of the church, right? Which is a mystery, which is the which is the mystery of the incarnation, is a closed book to those who have no experience of the church. That's why it's absurd to, to accept and believe that in a movement such as ecumenism, we're going to reach a point where we all have the same understanding and expression and experience of the church because it presupposes experience and participation. And, and that's exactly what does not exist among the various sectarian heterodox uh, groups. Uh, so again, Ecumenism can only flourish among those who don't have experience and are not following the church fathers. That's the only way you can you can you can purport uh, you can propose and promote such views, and you betray your lack of experience and understanding when you say such things. So, a living member of a living body—that's at the core of everything here. Nevertheless, since the inception of the church, the theological thought of church writers has undertaken, among other things, to define, again, to, I think what here defined is properly understood in this context is give boundaries to, right? Because that's what we do, what we, the term that's used in the ecumenical council is the oros, which means the definition of the council. The oros is actually the boundaries. 
So when we say define the essence of the church, obviously that's impossible, right? Essence of the church is 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 not even expressible in words, let alone definable. What he means is put the boundaries around that mystery, right? So that you outside of that, you will lose communion with that reality. And they want to understand, well, where do where do I start losing communion? How do why are these views that are that are proposed by the various heretics? Why are they both an expression of the lack of experience and leading people away from the experience? So they have to, in their struggle against heresy, that's when everything was developed, right? We didn't we didn't start and speculate, you know, after the divine liturgy with coffee, let's speculate about what the church is. No, no, no. There was a there was a struggle. There was a an attack on the life of the church. There was an attack on the identity of the church, and they were responding. And in that response, they had to say, well, what? How are we going to express our experience? How are we going to show the boundaries outside of which you must not go if you're going to be an expressor and conveyor of that experience. Uh, and so they had to try to define the essence of the church and its properties in concepts comprehensible to the human mind. It was a, it was a pastoral endeavor, essentially. The brief definition of the church presented in its symbol of faith, we're talking about the creed of Nicaea, the first uh, and second ecumenical councils, uh, creed, right? The Nicene Constantinople Creed, I believe in one God, all the way to the end. This uh, this brief uh, uh, oros, the oros of the First Ecumenical Council was essentially the creed. That's what the definition, the decision, the boundaries that were laid down was, was the creed. And so the this attempt in the symbol of faith could not be sufficient to ward off the various heretical Groups, since inevitable questions arose regarding the understanding of the creedal definition itself. And the very church, life of the church, insistently demanded that these questions be answered. This also points to something very interesting. So, you know, in the fourth century, when we have the great and an unfortunate schism of the Monophysites, who do not accept the Fourth Ecumenical Council and they depart, do you know, obviously, that at this point, the whole church has embraced the, the Nicene Constantinople Creed, as it, as, so they had that in common. Of course, they had it in common at the Great Schism when the Pope of Rome walked away from the Orthodox Church and created his own sectarian uh, idea of what, what authority is and the Holy Spirit is and all the rest. They did not listen to the rest of the hierarchy. They understood then, they, they confessed up to that point, the common creed. It is Harder to see with the Monophysites, but it should be very obvious to, for us to see with the Papal Protestants that the, the addition to that symbol is a proof of a departure from the symbol. It's a proof of the departure from the symbol. Because not only could they not understand and express that life uh, together, but now they actually change it to express something different. And they were they they insist on that change as uh, as blessed over and against all the church fathers and all of the ecumenical councils that had come before them and had rejected such an addition. What a tragedy! But you can see here that's not sufficient. We had those in common with all the various heretics from the fourth, fifth, sixth century all the way to our day. So more had to be given in order to protect people from the various uh, delusions and, and to call the uh, various uh, heretics to. Uh, to, to repentance and, the, and to set down the boundaries. The life of each person and his outward actions is intimately linked to his self 
identification. We have crisis of identity today, don't we? I mean, everybody's wondering, are they a boy or a girl? Or they're wondering who might be a boy or a girl. To that, to that degree of loss of self-identification has, has mankind sunk. Uh, so, yes, uh, who are we? What's the point of this life? What's the meaning of this life? Basic questions. Likewise, the outward life of the church in many of its manifestations is determined by the church's understanding of itself. That is, by the dogma concerning the church. The questions that arose throughout history concerning church practice roused church theological thought to a more detailed clarification of the very concept of the church. The same was required by the distortion of the true understanding of the church wrought by heretics and systematics. The first centuries of Christianity are peculiar in that throughout them, the church frequently had to contend with errors that deviated from the truth specifically in the doctrine concerning the church. Contrary to what people say today, oh, we didn't know about that. We don't have a definition. Unfortunately, important people say such nonsense. In the first century of the church life, we see se several fairly complex movements founded on ideas linked in one way or another to the dogma concerning the church. That is why more than at any other time, ecclesiastical theological thought in the first centuries focused its attention on clarifying the concept of the church. Again, contrary to what people often say today, that we didn't know, we didn't define, we didn't understand. St. Hilarion said, no, no, that's not true. It's actually then that it was laid down, but we're ignorant of it. That's why this book is so important. The heresies and schisms that appear in the church merely spurred the fathers and teachers of the church, having received wisdom from God to set forth dogmas, which of old the fishermen set down in simple words, through the power of the Spirit and understanding, for thus it was fitting to acquire a simple exposition of our faith. So that's from the Feast of the Three Hierarchs on January 30th. Very important to understand here that this is the patristic way. We're not telling you anything new. We're simply taking the simple faith handed down and we're explaining it in a way that's going to keep us from falling into error of the various heret heretical threats that are facing the church today. So the essays here presented are therefore devoted to a study of the pivotal points in the efforts of early church theological thought toward expounding and elucidating church doctrine concerning the church. The pivotal points, he's going to take the pivotal points and examine them. These pivotal points are determined by the most prominent anti-church movements founded on a distorted understanding of the church, with which the theologians of early church did literally do battle. Did literary battle, I should say. Sorry. These movements are Judaistic Christianity, Gnosticism, that would be the Judaizers, uh, actually, I think would be a better term uh, in our day. That's how we understand them. Montanism, Novationism, and Donatism, the various isms in the third, first, second, third, uh, and, well, up to the fourth century. And I guess St. Augustine would be in the early, early fifth. Uh, so, we therefore preface this study of the church's writers' dogmatic struggle against these anti-church phenomena with a brief, brief overview of the New Testament concerning the church. Each of the above phenomena in its own right could be the subject of a whole series of scholarly studies. Hence, in our essays, we will not be pursuing monographic exhaustiveness. So actually, that makes it more accessible to you and I, makes it more accessible for all of us. 
Rather, we are primarily focused on studying those dogmatic outcomes on the question of the church that resulted from dogmatic polemics motivated by one or another of the above phenomena. So we're at the top of page 15 for those who are not uh, looking at the screen. In our essays, the ends in view will not be those of church history, but rather of the history of dogma. All right, so we're not going to be talking about church history generally. We're talking about the history of dogma. So we're looking at church fathers, church writers who are talking about the faith. All right? Only by thus limiting the task will it become possible to unite all the essays here presented into a single study. Since the most prominent anti-church movements of old, which we have noted, may only be combined from the standpoint of dogmatic history. Only if you do a history of dogma can you combine all this into one study. From the standpoint of the Christian teaching concerning the church that unfolded in the struggle to combat them. It is our author's view, in other words, he's talking about himself, St. Hilarion's view, that a study of various questions from the history of the dogma concerning the church is of vital importance to church life and the duty of church theological scholarship. Where's St. Hilarion today to talk to some of our contemporary academics who go on discussing and debating and dealing with things that are really not touching on the pastoral problems facing the church. The church fathers didn't write academic treatises for academic journals. They wrote in response to threats to salvation and the pastoral pimantiki, in other words, the pastoral, the bishop's concern for his flock. That's what St. Hilarion is talking about here and what should be going on in church life and in church scholarship. That's what it should be driven, it should be driven by these pastoral concerns. The question of the church is always an interesting and important question. One ought always to proceed from the concept of the church when resolving questions of church life. And frequently, these questions essentially comprise a repetition or modification of old ones. Again, he's saying, look, we have the answers. We need to reapply them. We need to go back to the sources. We need to answer them on the basis of the fathers. If we had two or three or even one St. Hilarion today, we would have a different reality in the church. We need this approach. Follow the Holy Fathers. The gates of hell, but down here in the middle of the page, the gates of hell arrayed against the church in the uprising of heresies and errors to this day give rise to numerous anti-church phenomena. Combating, he's talking about ecumenism here. He's talking about those things that are just on the horizon, just appearing in, uh, in, in earnest in the Orthodox countries at the turn of the century there. Combating these phenomena is the task of the ecclesiastical figures of the day. That's the role of the bishops, to protect the flock, to, 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 to be on guard at the, at the entryway, to keep out the various heretical theories. It's not the job of the hierarchy. It's not the job of the theologians to go in dialogue with unrepentant heretics and other unrepentant heterodox sectarians. That's not the task, the role, the calling. That's a disaster. That's not what. That's not the way mission has ever been done. That's not the way the church has responded to heretical ideas in the past. That's not what's necessary. That's the role of church leadership to combat these phenomena. He says. Combating these phenomena is the task of the ecclesiastical figures of the day, but this fight must be grounded in the ancient church, 
and linked to the treasury of the theological knowledge of the Catholic Church. That's exactly what he, he intends to do with this book. One cannot help but notice how in our time questions arise and are discussed that have long been quite sufficiently resolved by the writers of the ancient church. Nothing new under the sun. Go back to the sources and you have your answers. Who is not aware that the question of the church is the chief principal question in modern polemics with sectarianism in various forms? And of course, in conducting these polemics, one must always bear in mind the dogmatic conclusions reached by the theological thought of the ancient church. This is why a study on the history of the dogma concerning the church is able to meet the modern needs of church life. Again and again, he's telling us, that's why I'm doing this, because I love the church. And I, we need to answer to today's threats, and that's why this book is so important. Western scholars have long and extensively been engaged in scholarly research of the history of the dogma concerning church, concerning the church. Catholics and predominantly Protestants, people who are strangers to the church. Let me repeat that. Western scholars have long and extensively been engaged in scholarly research of the history of the dogma concerning the church. And we know why, because they lost that experience. And obviously they're going to be grappling with that issue far more than we are in the East, in the Orthodox church. And so they have a long history of grappling with this. The Orthodox are coming late. And that's exactly what happened. Again, I want to stress this was exactly what happened and has to this day been the norm in Orthodox engagement in ecumenism. We've accepted their paradigm, their presuppositions, their experience as the starting point and the context in which we then try to witness the Orthodoxy. And it's a disaster. It's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to lead anywhere. And they know it. Unfortunately, many of them know it, but they continue because well, there are all kinds of passions that people have to have to satisfy. There are, and there is, of course, that rare, sincere, zealous cleric or theologian who's trying to do Orthodox mission and witness in the midst of all that. I do not deny it. I do not doubt it. But that's not the norm. That's not the overarching uh, theme, let's say, among the Orthodox ecumenists. He says, these have been concerned with the dogma concerning the church for some time, the Catholics, in other words, the papal Protestants, and the predominantly Protestants, the reformed Protestants, people who are strangers to the church. Let me repeat that. People who are strangers to the church. He didn't say the church is partial. The church is a little bit here, a little bit there. We're all part of the church. He didn't say what they will say eight years later in Constantinople, an encyclical to the various churches around the world of Christ, and talk about it as if the body of Christ in, involves and incorporates and includes all these various denominations, as the author of then Sigvald said, which was a disaster. And then he quotes, for Alexei Komiakov, who they revered, by the way, contrary to some contemporary scholars, quite justifiably called Catholicism and Protestantism heresies against the dogma of the essence of the church against its faith in its own self. They've gotten to the point where they don't even believe the church is divine human organism, just a human organism. And of course, if it's split into 1,000 and 10,000 and 40,000 pieces, it can't be a divine human organism. And if it is, it's got to be invisible because, well, you can't talk about a visible body because obviously we're 30,000 pieces. And even in, even in papal Protestantism, you have 
an experiential and theological division in, in many, many parts of Catholicism. What does a charismatic Pentecostal liberation theology theologian in South America have to do with a unit or, or, or a Cistercian monk who's studying the ancient text? What, what do they have in common except an authority figure that they appeal to? Otherwise, it might as well be two different religions. Uh, the conclusions drawn by scholarship outside the church is studying the history of the dogma concerning the church are what oblige theological scholars within the church to take up this important subject themselves. Why we love St. Hilarion so much? Because we understand and agree and embrace what he's saying here. It's our obligation. We people of the church believe and confess that we belong to that church which Christ and his holy apostles established. In the symbol of faith, we call our, our church apostolic. The history of the dogma concerning the church is, thus, is for us nothing less than the history of the academic and theological elucidation of the ever unified and unchanging concept of the church. Let's not be confused here. What we're doing is talking about the experience. It's not the experience itself, but we're describing the experience. Just like the Bible is not the logos to you, the word of God, but a witness and a and a testimony to that living logos, that 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 body of Christ on earth, right? Same thing here. The church and her self-identification have remained unified and unchanged from the time of Christ and the apostles to our own. So no matter what it might appear in this scholarly research, what might appear in all the various literature, this whole study that's been going on in the West and, and that I'm engaging here, this cannot and does not at all undermine or affect or distort or, or question that, that there's been a continuous experience and self-understanding that exists in the church by those who live the church. That's a given, right? I'm studying that now to elucidate it, but I'm not, I'm not making it. I'm not creating it, right? I'm just coming to, 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 to explain it and, and, and examine it. Our scholarly and theological elucidation of the dogma concerning the church has altered in its breadth and depth. Has altered. That's probably a typo here. Has altered in it. Has been altered, maybe. I think we got a typo. But scholarship outside the church takes an entirely different stance. And he cites now a text by a Protestant, famous Protestant, the rise of the old Catholic church. And what he means by old Catholic church is the ancient church. So this text is the title of a work by Albrecht Ritzel, who, which more than half a century hence laid the groundwork for the resolution of questions of church history and dogmatic history, which with certain amend amendments is advanced to this day by adherents of this Ritzel, Ritzel school, predominantly in Protestant scholarship. So he really played a huge role in German Protestant scholarship. It actually affected a lot of I think Catholicism eventually. The very title of the work is highly typical. To the question, what is the origin of the ecumenical church? One who is within the church may answer concisely and definitively. Quote, the church has founded, was founded by our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his holy apostles. If, however, entire exhaustive studies can be written on the origin of the church, it is apparent that the authors of these studies take a completely different view of the Catholic church. 
Um, here it doesn't mean Catholicism. It means the Catholic Church, the one holy Catholic Apostolic Church. Similarly, titled Protestant works chronologically span over 200 years. Clearly, in the opinions of their authors, the church originated over the course of entire centuries. It originated, it developed. It wasn't given, developed in the view of these, uh, of these heterodox. Christ and the apostles did not establish the Catholic Church. If indeed they did establish any church at all, it was certainly not the one that later became known as the Catholic Church. Of course, the Protestant problem there is that their reference point is Catholicism. And that, of course, creates all the problems. The latter church originated on its own, on its own out of various elements, influenced by numerous conditions. And in the final analysis, actually contradicts Christ and the apostles. He's talking about the heterodox view here that he's criticizing. It was not heretics and schismatics who distorted the concept of the church, but rather the church itself, they say, gradually altered its essence, retreating from its former self-identification. The, these are the sad, pathetic theories of men who have never experienced the church and are fighting against a straw man, against a distortion of the one holy Catholic apostolic church. That's the tragedy here. For many Protestant scholars, the ancient anti-church heretical movements we mentioned before are vestiges of the ancient concept of the church. Lord have mercy. As surmised based on scant and ambiguous information. Thus, it was not heretics who distorted the ancient doctrine concerning the church, but the church itself, which in condemning Montanism, for example, condemned and declared as heresy something that was formerly ecclesial, its own doctrine concerning the church. You see how contemporary Protestants or the 19th century Protestants he's referring to are projecting <laughs> their own experience. Of course, they have to. That's where they're coming from. And we all do that, don't we? From our experience, we're projecting back on ancient church. And we're saying, well, here today we have a thousand sects and we're dealing with this sect called Catholicism. So we should question all of church history now and actually think about the sectarians of the third century as just expressions of the one church. How can such scholarship and such ideas ever find the truth and, and come to be united to the pillar and ground of, of truth, which is the church? What a tragedy. The church is Christ and his apostles envisioned it lasted for a very short time, according to these heterodox. By the second century, the Catholic church that had originated in other words, was developing, declared it a heresy, destroyed it, and usurped its place. What a distortion of reality. What a distortion of reality. What was formed was not the apostolic church, but a church hostile to that of the apostles. In other words, the church of the fourth century, St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil the Great. These were, this was a church that was hostile to the true church, which had been lost, which was the, essentially the sectarians of the fourth century, third century, second century. It's amazing. There are people who actually speak in a with, with a you know uh, uh, in all seriousness in such a way. Forerunners to the to the nihilist uh, of today. What a tragedy! Along with historical events in the life of the church, changes of the most radical kind were also taking place in the very concept of the church, according to these heterodox. For example, in the third century, a doctrine of the sanctity of the church was developed into a total contradiction to what had been said on the subject in the second century. Well, it seems it would be not be an overstatement to say that this kind of idea 
of the history of the dogma concerning the church kills and undermines all faith in the church. It's not an, it's not an accident, brothers and sisters, that in the 21st century, people have lost faith in the church entirely in the West. I mean, I, I've been shocked, not totally, but it's still shocking that in these various um, reels that have, we've been posting, and, and one of them in particular has taken off, it's over 100 and something thousand views in, in a couple of weeks, which reels rarely are reels, you know, orthodox reels get three, four, ten thousand, but a hundred thousand. And it's on the seriousness of sexual sins. But what's my point here is that the commentary and underneath these is so anti-ecclesial because their whole reference point is a is a uh, distortion of what the church is. And so they've rejected it and they've become cynical and they've become uh, you know, just disgusted with what they understand Christianity to be, which is a distortion. Unfortunately, here, here is one of the you know the roots of this nineteenth-century Protestant scholarship that that undermine all faith in the church, which of course means all faith in Christ. You can't have true faith in Christ if you don't have faith in the church, because that's. First of all, the body of Christ, but that's how we understand who Christ is. That's how we experience Christ. What a tragedy. If we agree with the Protestant exposition of the history of the dogma concerning the church, we must discard the ninth article of the symbol of faith, of course. If you're honest, if Protestants are honest, they have to reject the Nicene Creed. They have to reject the ninth article. They have to reject the first ecumenical, second ecumenical, third ecumenical, all the ecumenical councils. They have to reject it all. If they're honest and they continue to maintain the various heretical ecclesiologies that are pushed within ecumenism. That article combines the Catholic Church with the Apostolic Church. One holy Catholic and Apostolic. It's one church from the beginning to the end. The first and second comings of Christ. It is therefore the duty of theological scholarship within the church... All of our academic theologians should be paying close attention. What's he going to say? It's our duty to give its own exposition of the history of the dogma concerning the church, which may be used to counter how that history is framed outside the church. That's what he's doing. That's why this book is so important for all of us in the English-speaking world. Here we have someone who's going to do this job for us. It's going to make it easy for us to go back to the ancient fathers and see that the church had a particular identity and a boundary, and outside that there were no mysteries, and there were no there was no salvation. All those all the ones commemorated in this book, all the church fathers have that common conviction and, and, and experience. You walk away from the church, you walk away from Christ, and therefore salvation. That's the common witness of the first four centuries, and of course the whole 20th centuries. 20, centuries of the church, but we're talking about the first four and the examination for this in this book. To this day, we might observe this duty remains almost entirely undischarged. So he's, he's complaining, saying nobody's doing this. And unfortunately, very few have done it since him. St. Eustin Popovich would be one of the great worthy uh, successors uh, to this, uh, this great saint. There have been works devoted to the history of the dogma concerning the church, but these have long become obsolete and do not at all consider the new questions that have arisen in the arena of scholar, scholarly knowledge over the last several decades. 
It it is this circumstance that determines the nature of the present work on various questions pertaining to the history of the dogma concerning the church. We are preceded by scholars outside the church with whom we have a significant and fundamental difference of opinion. By the same token, there are a great many works dealing in one way or another with the history of the dogma concerning the church, since the history of the dogma concerning the church is intimately linked to the history of various aspects of church life and the teaching of various church writers concerning the church has its explanation in the historical circumstances of their lives and their ecclesiastical and literary work. For this reason, nearly every scholarly book on the history of the church or patristic theology has proven to have some bearing on certain questions, often minute and highly particular in our own study. Such an abundance of scholarly literature renders it us completely unable to systematically review all the opinions expressed on each of the multitudinous and very nearly innumerable questions in our study. <laughs> well, that's kind of funny because 2,400 references, he did a pretty good job, a pretty good job of getting uh, every every scholarly work and every patristic scholar, uh, work he had in mind, it seemed. If we were to undertake not to leave a single stated opinion without exposition and analysis, we would have to write an entire study on each separate question. Well, thank God we have this. We can have it. It's accessible to us, even if it is long. Only by adopting a different approach can we combine an entire series of complex and intertwined questions of the greatest importance in a single, single study. We therefore choose the, appro to, the approach of historical criticism of the primary sources. Our attention will be concentrated. By the way, that's not the historical criticism of biblical. It's not the biblical criticism that you're, you're, you might be having in mind. It's not the Western approach. Uh, he's just saying we're going to analyze historically the sources. Our attention will be concentrated primarily on remnants of early church literature, on essays by the writers of the ancient church who undertook to elucidate the teaching of the church. The multitudinous scholarly works we have studied served merely as our aid in achieving this stated goal. Nevertheless, we hold it impossible to completely pass over in silence all the variety and richness of the content of these uh, frequently monumental, informative, and interesting works and at times we will not be sparing with quotes and citations therefrom. You certainly were not, St. Hilarion, sparing with your quotations and citations. We merely do not undertake, uh, we merely do not undertake the complete and systematic usage. Each else we would constantly be obliged to stray far from the topic at hand. We will concentrate only on the most general ideas most frequently encountered among modern scholars of church history and dogmatic history, and holding the majority of these ideas inadmissible for theological scholarship within the church in our study of the primary sources, along with the positive exposition. Uh, oh, let's see what happened here. There we go. Uh, explanation of their substance. We will point our facts within them that disprove or at least shake the foundations of Protestant scholarship's prevailing representation of the history of the dogma concerning the church. In other words, we're going to we're going to we're going to address those contemporary issues, uh, and we'll show uh, the foundations of Protestant scholarship's uh, history uh, representation of the history is mistaken. In our desire to discern the development of ecclesial self-identification in the writings and theological literature of the ancient church in the course of our study, we may at times have erred 
from the truth by incorrectly conveying the thinking of the ancient church and passing off our own folly as church doctrine. Here he's doing what every humble study of the scholar of the fathers should do and, and is, is wise to do and to say, look, look to the fathers. Don't mistake my mistakes for theirs. They're not to blame, but I am to blame. And that's what we're required to do. We can therefore do no better than to say in the words of the blessed Augustine, as many things as you have, as you will have ascertained to be true, keep and bestow them to the Catholic Church. Those that you have perceived to be false, spit out, spit them out and forgive me who am a man. And let's remember that in our reading to this book, but also of St. Augustine and all the church fathers, uh, they are men and they can err. And that's why we don't become fanatic followers of one church father, but the whole patristic consensus together. Unfortunately, we have that in the church today. Uh, either they want to make a straw man out of church fathers, as I said earlier, and they want to present their opponents as being fanatical followers of one church father, which of course shows that they don't understand the patristic consensus properly. I think many times that shows that, but it also happens that we have fanatical followers of one or two church fathers. St. Augustine, I think that happens to occasionally, even among converts to orthodoxy, but especially among the heterodox. And so the same applies here uh, as everywhere that the patristic consensus, keep that, keep that. And, and there may be things in this book that is not the patristic consensus. It's not a perfect book. And uh, uh, it's, it's, its value is not in its 100% perfection in every word or in every line or every take, but it's love of the church fathers, it's desire to present the patristic consensus, and it's presenting to us the common mind of the church fathers. That's, I think, what we need to focus on when we're reading the book. The author holds all doubt as to the perfect truth of the one holy Catholic Orthodox Church of Christ to be unacceptable. So there is no doubt in the perfection of the church, he says. Such doubt may, may result either from ignorance or from sinfulness. Laboring on the question of the church has taught the author to read the prayer for the church from the daily commemorations with particular love and trepidation of heart. Quote, Among the first, remember, O Lord, thy holy Catholic and apostolic church, which thou hast preserved by thy precious blood to establish, strengthen, expand, increase, pacify, and keep her unconquerable by the gates of Hades. Calm the dissension of the churches. Quench the raging of the nations. Quickly destroy and uproot the rising of the her of heresy and bring them to naught by the power of thy Holy Spirit. September 25th. Oh, we're almost up to 110 years exactly here coming up next week from when he wrote this 110 years ago. Commemoration of the Venerable Sergius. September 25th. So that's a beautiful prayer that we can all adopt ourselves. I hope we all consider to adopt that prayer for ourselves. Remember, preserve, quench the rage of the nations. God knows that's happening. Quickly destroy and uproot the rising of heresy. And that it reminds us of the, of the uh, prayer of St. Basil the Great 
in the divine liturgy, very similar to what St. Basil the Great offers. So hopefully, brothers and sisters, that's been an interesting and informative and exciting presentation tonight. I wanted to introduce the book to you. I wanted to show you why it's important that we read the book, why it's important that we read the writings of St. Hilarion. I wanted to acquaint you with those writings, acquaint you with uh, uh, the man to a certain degree, but I think we all need to read much more. Uh, we are going, as I said, we are dedicated in our press, or Uncomatum Press, along with St. Nicodemus the Hagrite and all the Kolivadi's fathers, we are pledging all of us in our team here and dedicated to take our resources and our time and continue to translate the works, if possible, the entire corpus of St. Hilarion Trotsky into English over in due time, along with the works and writings of St. Nicodemus the Hagirite and all of the Kolivadi's fathers. And we're working right now on the translation, including a very important introduction by uh, uh, a very good scholar of the Kolivadi's fathers uh, down in Southern Greece of Do Dorotheos Vulismas's important treatise on baptism. And so that's another work that's going to be coming out from us soon. We're going to pick up soon the writings of St. Athanasius of Paros, very important uh, writer of the, among the Kolivadi's in the 18th century. Uh, but here tonight, we inaugurate our publishing activity with the most one of the most important texts that he ever produced, but certainly one of the earliest, if not the earliest, and that is his master's thesis, uh, an, an examination, an overview uh, of the various uh, of the dogma of the church in the writings of the church fathers in the first four centuries. <laughs> Yeah.